Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers and other documents. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cottom is our interpretive guide. This episode is taken from the front page coverage of efforts to prepare the city for the Agricultural Expo of 1910. Buildings of the Appalachian Exposition, the Daily Journal and Tribune, Knoxville, Tennessee, September 1, 1910. Indications are that there will be no lack of transportation means during the Appalachian Exposition, either to or in the city of Knoxville, or out to the exposition grounds. Both the Southern and the Louisville and Nashville railways have announced that they will have special coaches or trains where necessary, and that ample accommodation will be made for all. At present, there are 34 passenger trains per day entering and leaving Knoxville over the Southern Railway Company's lines. An official announcement was made a few days ago that beginning September 12th and continuing throughout the exposition, four new trains daily will be inaugurated. Two of these trains will run between Knoxville and Chattanooga, while the other two will be operated between this city and Bristol. The schedules of these four new trains have been so arranged that persons living along the line may come to Knoxville early in the morning, remain the entire day, and leave for their homes late in the afternoon or night. In order that no delay may be made in transferring visitors from the city to the exposition grounds, the officials of the Southern Railway have agreed to run shuttle trains between the depot and the grounds on very short schedules. It is expected that they will give about a 15-minute service. Officials of the Louisville and Nashville Railway say that it is impossible yet to say whether they will put on extra trains. It will depend entirely on traffic. The Louisville and Nashville now has 18 trains daily entering and leaving Knoxville. Of course, travel will be heavier some days than others, and it is believed by the Louisville and Nashville people that on the coal miners' day at the exposition, it will be necessary for them to handle from 5,000 to 8,000 people, as their line runs directly into the richest coal regions of this section of the country. Along with the large number of trains that will carry visitors to and from the city over the southern and Louisville and Nashville lines, there are four trains daily over both the Knoxville and the Augusta and the Knoxville-Severeville and Eastern Railways. While these are comparatively short lines, they both reach into rich sections of East Tennessee, and they will be called upon to handle their share of the travel. Posters advertising the exposition have been placed along the entire distances of both these railways, and the Appalachian Exposition seems to be the most popular subject ever discussed by the citizens along these lines of railways. It is easy to see that the railroads are doing all in their power to make the exposition a success. One great question that has confronted the exposition management was how to transport the visitors to the exposition grounds after they reached the city. Of course, the Knoxville Railway and Light Company was looked to to make accommodations for the crowd, and in order to do so, it has been necessary for them to purchase 24 new motor cars and 16 new trailers. One great question has been to find out how many cars could be in operation upon the park line at one time, and what schedule could be observed. In order to make the best accommodations possible, a new spur track has been built just beyond the ball grounds at the park, and on this will be placed numbers of cars to be in readiness for the crowds when they begin to start to the city. Another great improvement that is being made by the company is the loop being built around the square in front of the main entrance to the exposition grounds. 
This loop will obviate all possibility of cars becoming crowded around the exposition grounds with no means of egress, and will also do away with blocked lines, as is often the case at present between the park and the racetrack, where there is no double track. In speaking of the new schedules that will be observed during the exposition, Mr. T.C. Kelly, superintendent of the Knoxville Railway and Light Company, said that they expect to have 115 cars per hour run from Knoxville to the grounds. Of course, this means that the same cars will sometimes make the trip twice in one hour. Along with this new schedule on the park line, the company expects to inaugurate new schedules on all other lines of the city, on some of them twice as many cars as under the present schedule, while on part of the lines there will be three and in some cases four times as many cars per hour as at present. Along with the question of transportation, it must be remembered that the railroads and electric lines are not the only companies looking forward to heavy travel during the exposition. Garages and motor companies are making preparations for handling their share of the crowds. At least two cars will be set aside by each of the motor companies for special parties who wish to make a tour of the city or exposition in a body, and others will be kept in front of the hotels to carry persons to the exposition grounds who do not wish to take the trip by trolley. Roads leading to the park are being placed in first-class condition, and it is expected that quite a number of persons will take advantage of these cars for motoring and sightseeing. One motor company, it is claimed, has purchased a number of extra-large new cars for the exposition, and they will not only be an advantage in handling the crowds, but will also be of much interest as being the largest cars ever brought to this city. Of course, the usual number of cab drivers will always be on hand on the principal streets and in front of the hotels, eager for their share of the traffic. It is also possible that some of the livery stables will operate bus lines between Knoxville and the park. With this number of means of transportation open for the public, there is absolutely no reason why Knoxville cannot accommodate everybody who wish to attend the exposition. Appalachian Exposition will hold forth in the following buildings. The main building. This beautiful structure, 400 feet long and 150 feet wide, with a floor area of 80,000 square feet, was designed by Mr. J. R. Graff, a young Knoxvillian of the firm of R. A. Graff & Sons. This building is of the Ionic style of architecture, and while massive, its lines are graceful. Situated on a hillside, this building is peculiarly constructed and that while having two floors, both are upon terra firma, being built upon a terrace. This building has been pronounced by experts one of the best equipped, best lighted, and most convenient exposition buildings ever constructed. It is not only beautiful by day, but by night is dazzling in its electric brilliancy. Livestock and Poultry Building The Livestock and Poultry Building is 120 feet by 148 feet, containing 18,000 square feet of floor area. This building is equipped with modern stalls and pens and is so constructed as to make it absolutely sanitary. All the interior is in white. The building is well lighted with art lights and in short is one of the best adapted buildings for the purpose ever constructed in the South. Knox County Building The Knox County Building, in which will be placed the Knox County Exhibit and the various county exhibits, is one of the prettiest buildings on the grounds, of Doric style of architecture, fronting on the main driveway near the entrance to the grounds. This building stands a monument to the broad-mindedness and liberality of Knox County. 
This building is a two-story structure, 50 feet by 60 feet, with a floor area of 6,000 square feet. Woman's Building Fronting the driveway at the edge of the upper lake stands the Woman's Building, the home of the fine arts, domestic science, and the handiwork of women. This building is 58 feet wide by 141 feet long, containing approximately 9,000 square feet, has a beautiful ionic front, and is artistically arranged inside, the color scheme being white and olive green. This building will contain a reception room for the ladies, a dressing room, and a restroom where the comforts of lady visitors to the exposition will be cared for. Mineral and Forestry Building The Mineral and Forestry Building crowns the highest point in the exposition grounds and is approached by a winding driveway through a grove of native trees. This building is 64 feet by 89 feet with an outer porch supported by columns of native timber. This building, standing on the highest peak, commands a splendid view of the entire grounds. The interior is arranged in a unique manner, a central balcony on marble pedestals supporting the various exhibits, while the walls on either side contain exhibits of both forestry and minerals. Entering the building, you find an arch, the bases of which are constructed of Tennessee marble, surmounted by native woods, and a marble balustrade at the apex of whose pillars are masses of coal, iron ore, zinc ore, etc., the Auditorium. Situated in a grove on the west side of the ground stands the Auditorium, with a seating capacity of 3,000 people. In this building, the Peace Conference will be held and the Conference of Women's Clubs of the South. In the Auditorium will be heard the many eminent speakers who will be the guests of the exposition on the various occasions. The Negro Buildings. The Negro Building is possibly one of the handsomest buildings on the grounds and stands a monument to the public-spirited and energetic colored population of the city, which raised by subscription among its race approximately $5,000. This building, which stands near the lower lake, is a two-story structure with a central court, giving it a handsome interior effect. It was designed by a colored architect and built by colored contractors. Belva Lockwood will be a guest. Belva Lockwood, LLD, presidential candidate, is to be a guest speaker at the exposition. The following interest article about Mrs. Lockwood is taken from the Wichita Appeal. Mrs. Lockwood is of national reputation, having made the race for president in 1884 as the candidate of the Equal Rights Party. She doesn't pride herself on her adventure with national politics, but she does look upon her work in connection with the International Peace Bureau with a great deal of satisfaction. In this work, she's made seven trips across the ocean for the purpose of attending sessions of the Peace Congress. At every one of these great gatherings, Mrs. Lockwood appeared as a speaker. She is now secretary of the American branch of the International Peace Bureau in Washington and has been elected to this position every year since 1891. Mrs. Lockwood will be 80 years old if she lives until next November, and there are no apparent signs of her immediate demise. She is hale and hardy, not as agile as a person of more tender years, yet her brain is as quick and active as at any time of her career. She dresses well but plain, and while opposed to rats and puffs, wears some dandy little corkscrew curls. As evidence of her remaining activity, besides her law practice and duties with the Peace Bureau, 
She's president of the Women's National Press Association at Washington, belongs to the Federation of Women's Clubs, and has been appointed a director of the Peace Congress to be held September 26th in connection with the Appalachian Exposition in Knoxville, Tennessee. On this occasion, she will speak on the futility and extravagance of the United States government in expending millions of dollars every year for the building of battleships to be manned by American citizens and sent cruising around the world at the public expense when we haven't an enemy on earth. She says that the only result derived from the government's great outlay of the people's money in the construction of battleships is to cause other countries to embarrass their finances by following suit and building up their navies. Mrs. Lockwood is the only woman lawyer upon whom the degree of LLD was ever conferred. Hardwick's Predictions In an excellent address at the Appalachian Exposition Banquet months ago, Mr. S. H. Hardwick, passenger traffic manager of the Southern Railway with headquarters at Washington, not only predicted the great success of the coming show, but gave facts and figures to prove why it must be. His address was as follows. The Appalachian Exposition to be held in Knoxville is going to be a tremendous success. Enough has already been done by the men of genius managing this exposition to underwrite the success. Those, therefore, who fail to enlist in unreserved support of this great enterprise are only robbing themselves. In all the vast sweep of the Appalachian Range, extending from the Gulf of St. Lawrence to the Tennessee River at Knoxville, including the mountains of Canada, the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the Green Mountains of Vermont, the Adirondacks and Catskills of New York, the Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, the Alleghenies and Blue Ridge of Virginia and North Carolina, it is very appropriate that Knoxville, sitting at the feet of the Great Smokies and the Unakas, some of the most southerly peaks of all the Appalachians, should be the first to make this demonstration for the advancement of the Great Appalachian Park movement. The Appalachian Exposition is therefore of the triumphant class, Situated so favorably, Knoxville easily attracts the people of this whole country. This beautiful section of surpassing fertility of farm and yield of mine and reward of industry, so many people here engaged in gainful pursuits, with no drones, no idlers, the very location assures success. Beyond all this, the Southern Railway and its associate lines and connections, which means practically all the railroads in this country, are going to put on excursion tickets for this exposition at such low rates and operate such attractive service as to make everybody ashamed to stay away. Within a radius of 50 miles of Knoxville, there are nearly 400,000 people. Within a radius of 200 miles, about 6 million people. Knoxville thus possesses an ideal location as a center of attraction for a large population immediately adjacent to her own borders. Naturally, the greatest number of people in attendance upon any exposition are drawn from the nearer territory. And although we shall bring many people from far distant points all over the United States, yet it has been our experience that the average distance for exposition travel is 75 miles. Still, Knoxville is so favorably situated that even if this were the maximum instead of the average distance, there are enough people within this radius to make the exposition a great success. But my friends, no railroad ever makes money out of any exposition. 
The bases of fares are so low and the overwhelming expense of service so great as to wipe out the net and put the revenue balance away over on the wrong side. The direct money returns are never compensatory. The Southern Railway engages in this enterprise, not expecting to make money directly from this source. But our president recognizes the wishes of the people and is always glad to cooperate with them in such meritorious efforts as this. While a railroad company makes no money directly from its exposition traffic, yet if the exposition is a success, there is a profit to the railroad company in the subsequent results of the exposition, such as the increased incoming population, the commercial and industrial development of the country, and more than all else, and the increase in the character and permanency of the friendly relations between the railroad and the people. We are happy, therefore, that this exposition is being projected at such an auspicious time as this. We have particular pleasure in acknowledging the happiness and importance of all the press and the railroads working together with all other people for this desired result. All partners and co-laborers, as in the older times, going forward now without distraction, without friction, but in entire harmony and mutual helpfulness, each emulating the best work of the other, and all pulling together in a common purpose to achieve a most uncommon success. And so we have come gladly to join with you in doing all we can to assist in making the Appalachian Exposition the tremendous success which it is surely going to be. Was this exposition successful? It was successful in that it made enough money to justify the energy and, and the investment that the business leaders of the community put into it. Mm -hmm. They had hoped for half a million visitors and they had 350,000, which is pretty impressive because that was about 10 times the population of the city of Knoxville. And so that, that wasn't bad. It was a challenge for the uh, community to try to stage an event of that scale. And a lot of people thought that the city just couldn't pull it off. Which industries made the money? Well, the stockholders. A lot of prominent individuals in town bought shares of stock in the exposition. So that's how they funded it. The Knoxville community had wanted to develop a park. Chohowie Park was really what came out of that enterprise. And this was part of the sort of exposition fever of the 1880s and 90s and, and on into the early 1900s. There were expositions every few years all around the country, some St. Louis, Omaha, Atlanta, Nashville. And they were generally very popular and drew a pretty good crowd. And it was the first effort, really, that the city made to try to get involved in tourism. So uh, I think overall it was successful, and it certainly brought some entertainment to the city of Knoxville. They brought some things that people probably wouldn't have seen anywhere near as soon as they did. The um, Wright Brothers Airplane, which was exhibited at the fair, and I think it was every day that they actually had a little example of flight with the plane. Now, the Wright brothers didn't fly it. They had a, a barnstormer pilot fly it, but it was flown over at Cal Johnson's racetrack, which is now Speedway Circle. Mm -hmm. And when you went over to see the flight, you got a ticket that would get you back in the fair. And they also had uh, Strobel's dirigible. We have a postcard of that, and it, I don't know if it's really a picture of the, of the dirigible or not. I'm not sure, uh, because it looks for all the world like a piece of, of art where an image of a dirigible was stuck in the sky. But anyway, <laughs> they did have the dirigible, and it did fly over Knoxville. And it was pretty amazing to people because uh, 
people had read in the newspaper that such things existed, but nobody had ever seen that here before. It was very successful. They claimed that people from all over the United States came, but the one piece of evidence that we have would suggest that most everybody came from within the region uh-huh. and not too terribly far away. Uh-huh. But one example of somebody who did come is uh, Thomas Wolfe's father. There's an account of that in one of the biographies of Wolfe. He came over and spent a couple of days in Knoxville to see the exposition. Uh, of course, Wolfe's father was kind of a character himself, so <laughs> he wanted to get away from the Mrs. for a while and hang out in Knoxville, which was a, um, a dry town, except for all the little saloons that were now just selling non-alcoholic drinks in theory, but in fact you could get a drink. Knoxville wasn't as dry as as people had hoped it was going to be when they passed the ordinance in 1907. Slightly damp, but not dripping. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the literature suggests that uh, Knoxville was one of those towns where you could, that they classified how easy it was to get alcohol, but how long it took you to find a drink in a dry town. In Knoxville, you could get a drink in just a couple of minutes. So <laughs> it wasn't very dry, I don't think. How long did the exposition run? The first exposition ran for a month and was pretty successful. And so Knoxville ran from September the 12th to October the 12th. And it was so much fun, Knoxville decided to try it again in 1911. But they were a little unsure about it, so I think it only ran about three weeks. And that one did all right. But then they got really ambitious and decided to try to stage a, a national exposition in 1913, and they persuaded Gifford Pinchot to be the ceremonial chairman of the board of this National Conservation Exposition. And of course, Pinchot had become a leader of conservation movement during the Theodore Roosevelt administration. Well, he's the National Forest guy, right? National so, Forest so guy. So he's, yeah. he's let's set aside some areas to be managed for timber. Right, timber. right. He, he was looking at all mineral resources. I mean, that was the idea of conservation then. It wasn't to preserve it pristinely, but just uh-huh. to, to manage it carefully so that you didn't leave a, a ruined landscape uh-huh. in your wake. I wonder what he would think of mountaintop removal today. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, but that's I'll, another topic. I guess a lot of the forests had already been denuded at that time. Right, and the way the timber industry operated was pretty much a slash-and-burn operation in those days. They would come in and s- remove all the large-growth timber and leave behind a lot of limbs and debris and then those would dry out and then there would be a fire and the whole landscape would be denuded so mm-hmm. he was advocating a, a managed kind of forest idea it was a, a good idea but he agreed to be the ceremonial head of this and um this was a much more ambitious exposition the third one in 1913 it was uh they really tried to make it national they expanded the park they built more buildings had more communities from around particularly the South. I think it was really more aimed regionally at the South than the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. But it went on for two months, and um, they claimed that it had a million visitors. So it was extremely successful. We believe what they said. Do any of those buildings remain? The only building at the park that's still standing from the expositions is the Little Marble Bandstand, which was uh, the only non-combustible building on the site. Almost every building that was there over a period of 20 or 30 years burned at some point. The old main exhibition building, which stood where the Jacobs Building stands today, burned in 1935. Mm-hmm. All these structures were wood and stucco, so when a fire got started, they were pretty much consumed in flames before anybody could do too much about it. Mm-hmm. That most unusual building was the coal building, which was uh, covered in lumps of 
coal on the outside. <laughs> I guess <laughs> that really went up. <laughs> that must have made a really interesting fire. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the oddest building out there, and it supposedly burned also, was the, the one of the Stranger Buildings exhibits was uh, the log house that, that people claimed that Admiral Farragut was born in back in the turn of the previous century. And... Uh, that was that was moved there. That building was moved there and set up as a little exhibit of the primitive frontier life of years gone by. But they also had um, in the thir- 1913 exhibition they had a, and maybe in the 1910 they had a, an exhibit of a cabin with a really simple, because the theme was Appalachia, a simple uh, style of living, and they had uh, actually had a woman and her daughter. In the ca- living in the cabin during the exposition, and they were spinning thread and weaving and talking to people who came by, and they were part of the exhibits. And they also had one of my favorite exhibits at the exposition, 1910 exposition, was the um, the guy they brought down from Cades Cove, who was the veteran moonshiner of the Smokies, and it was a man named Birchfield from up in Cades Cove, and he lived there as an exhibit. They had built a still, and they had built a little cabin for him and he came down with his, his gun and his dog and he hung out there for a month and talked to people about moonshining. <laughs> Taught him how to do it? Well, just sort of talked about it. <laughs> I was so jealous reading about all of this passenger rail service they had mm-hmm. every 15 minutes. Yeah. What happened to our railroads? Well, I think the passenger service was not a, not as profitable as freight. It was, um, I think, 19... I think it was either 13 or 15 when the Model T really got cranked started. That, you know, it's right after this exposition. And it's not very many years until we have the Good Roads Movement, which was to build paved roads paved with concrete so that automobiles could travel over the, the road. So I think there's a, it's a real economic incentive to, to gang up on passenger freight lines. And that same thing happened to the public transportation, the, the streetcars and trolley systems that... Uh, the uh, automobile industry didn't really want competing with them. People like the trolleys better than they did the buses, so today we have buses. Does that tell you anything? <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, the, uh, there, there was a lot of concern about how to get people out from downtown out to Chihuahua Park, and they had streetcar service that was constant. They uh, accelerated the streetcar service, and they even had little things in the newspaper to tell people who weren't familiar with the streetcar how to get on and get off safely without getting hurt, which I thought was interesting. But when you think there were people coming from all of, you know rural areas around, that there are probably people who would never ridden a streetcar and maybe never even seen a streetcar before. So mm-hmm. it, was, it, was, it, it, it was really a celebration of the economic achievement of the city mm-hmm. because the city had grown enormously from 1860 to 1900. The population had gone from 8,000 to... 30,000, and, and the city was really looked poised to become another Birmingham or another Atlanta, which is what a lot of the community leaders wanted. And it, you know, it, it, then it, right after this turn of the century, growth began to slow down. It grew, but it just didn't grow as fast as people had anticipated. Retail and wholesale sales of products was always, was always a driving force. Knoxville was always a, a center for distribution of manufactured goods. Uh, but manufacturing had uh, it occupied about a third of the workforce in the community at large. A lot of these people were African-American and uh, Appalachian whites who came into the city. So we had a, mm-hmm. we had a dynamic city, but it, it sort of stalled. And the way they managed to make it grow on paper between 19, 
um, 10 and 20 was to annex all the little satellite communities around the city. So it doubled in size from 36,000 people to 77,000 people. But it did that by annexing Park City and all the other, Lonsdale, all the other little communities around the city and increased the geographical territory enormously. But on paper, it looked like we were, they called it the 114% city because they were trying to make the population jump. <laughs> <laughs> and all of that's kind of connected to the expositions, I think. Uh, they call it boosterism back in those days, you know, to boost the city, to make uh, people interested in. Uh, in it as a place to do business. And they had a wonderful little map, which um, you see reproduced a lot through this whole era of how far it was from Knoxville to go out 500 miles. And so each each circle was an additional 100 miles from the city. And it was amazing how much of the eastern U.S. was within 500 miles of Knoxville. And, of course, today we measure that in interstate. Then they were measuring it in, mainly by rail. So you could get... Uh, to all the major cities within a 500-mile radius by rail at that time, 1910? Oh, yeah, I think you could. Could It might not be a real easy connection, but you yeah. certainly could. The, the you sure can't now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could then. The L&N was the big rival railroad. Knoxville was, uh, always had a monopoly with the Southern Railroad, and then the L&N came to town mm -hmm. in 1905 and, and added additional points of service west, so you could get around you know, on the rail. Passenger rail was was quite effective way to get around. It was much more effective than trying to go any other way you could go, certainly not by water. Probably more effective than trying to go by air now, <laughs> considering what you go through when you try airlines. Probably, yeah. It sounded like electrification of the buildings was a pretty big deal. I think. It was. Knoxville had had electricity. The, the electric light was first exhibited in Knoxville in the 1880s, so people were familiar with the electric light for indoor light or maybe a shop window. But this was the first time they really started doing large outdoor electrification on a pretty grand scale. And by, in the 1913 exposition, they electrified the whole park. And um, in fact, I think, let's see, that was 13. I think it was president, it was the president, of, it was Taft or Wilson, pushed a little button to turn all the lights on in the park and all the electrical stuff. And that was, he couldn't be there, but he, he punched the button to, to start it all. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was a it was pretty that was pretty amazing to see all that outdoor electricity and everything lit. One of the books by Robert Booker mentioned that the Negro Building was built by students at Knoxville College. Yeah, that that's correct. The the um, community wanted a participation of the of the African American community. Uh, the college was a really important uh, cultural institution in the city, and the person uh, J H Miles, I think his name was. Well, who was um, one of the, he was a, a draftsman slash architect. He designed the building and the students built the building. And the odd thing about it was that this was the days of Jim Crow and segregation. And I think that the part that the exposition was only open to African Americans for a very limited period of time. Certain days? Certain days. Mm -hmm. And then um, maybe just one day I remember seeing a notice, you know. Oh, you that's know. too bad. Yeah. Because they had a list of special days. They had like... Minister's Day and Veterans Day, and I think one of the days was uh, African Americans, except I think it was colored, called colored mm -hmm. in that time. Well, now, one of the biggest draws in the 1913 exposition was the Knoxville Colored Chorus. It was also called the Knoxville Jubilee Chorus. So Knoxville had its own African American chorus, which sang, I think, every day. And I guess it was sort of uh, competing with, like, the Fisk Jubilee Singers. I mean, it was the same idea, but they didn't have the Fisk Singers. They had a local group, and, they, and we have a a photograph of them.
from the 1913 exposition. They were a big draw, but they were there every day performing. They also had, uh, I think the exposition was not open on Sunday because of the blue laws at the time. You know, nothing was open on Sunday. And some of the working people protested, and a number of the businesses in the, the greater Knoxville area closed and gave their employees a paid day to go to the exposition to support the exposition, which I thought was kind of interesting. And in thir- 1913, the, one of the driving forces behind uh, behind the, the exposition was a man named William Goodman, and he did this big hardback book, which was the history of all three expositions that was sort of wrapped into the, the big story was the National Conservation Exposition of 1913. Lots of photos in there, and and probably the most information we have about what happened was, is in that book. The common thread with the 1982 World's Fair would have to be fireworks. They talked constantly about all the fireworks that they had, and they had fireworks every night, just like they did at the 82 Fair. And apparently at that time, the person who did the fireworks tried to create images with the fireworks. I'd love to see what that looked like. They had like the Battle of Waterloo or something, you know, with the, created with fireworks. Um, that was the big draw. I'm sure everybody stayed till the fireworks in the evening, just like they did in the World's Fair in 1982. They tried to carry that conservation exposition on. Uh, they thought it might be uh, something that could make an annual event, and it didn't work at all. So these three expositions were the big effort on the part of Knoxville, and that really was sort of the genesis of the Tennessee Valley Fair. I mean, the, after that, the, this focus switched back toward the traditional mm-hmm. fair, which was a, a local, regional kind of thing that celebrated agriculture and all sorts of, of um, husbandry and all sorts of things that were traditional for the fairs, and they, of course, had the Midway. And the Midway was a feature of, um, of all three expositions, and it continues to be part of the, part of the fair if you go out to Joe Howie Park. Well, they really built out rail transportation to get ready for these expos, mm-hmm. and they really built out the interstate highway system to get ready for the 1982 <laughs> Expo. So I think it's time for us to have yet another expo and build out the passenger rail again. Well, why not? Why not? I think that's an excellent idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start a movement. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Steve. You're welcome. You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. On the podcast page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. You can leave your comments on each podcast episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. The music was performed by Music Therapy, and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenneman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past. This work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, Some Rights Reserved.